You are listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. I just praise God for you, um, church family. Uh, we're just so grateful for what the Lord has been doing. Uh, I'm excited to share that we closed out our 2023 uh, giving uh, by our, our church giving um, $815,000 $815, more than our budget uh, required. So we praise God for that. Listen. We're going to be sharing more about uh, what we're going to do with that and what we have in store as a church as we look forward uh, to not only this year, but years to come. Um, I encourage you to be at our vision night, which is uh, taking place on Sunday night, February 4th. There's no playoff football that weekend. We, we, I mean, I want to watch playoffs, so we intentionally did that uh, that night, and um, we'll share, again, what God's doing, more details about that and other things, uh, but half of that's going to pay off uh, the debt, uh, which is not that much more than that amount, um, and so we'll be paying off all of our loan uh, pretty soon. Um, 25% of that is going to missions, including uh, a big portion going to our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 25% of that is going to some ministry needs that we have, and so we'll be sharing about that, and so I'm just thankful for you and what God is doing uh, in our church. If you're here today as a visitor, maybe you're watching online for the first time, uh, all we'd like from you is for you to text the word CONNECT uh, to the number 850-600-6779 or stop by one of the welcome tables and one of our CONNECT team members will follow up with you uh, this week. Um, and I just want to encourage everyone who's a part of our church or been attending our church for a little while, if you're not a part of a life group, uh, to please uh, consider being a part of a life group because that is really where uh, church happens. That is really where uh, we begin to press in and build relationships and be spurred to grow in our walk with Christ. Uh, we're in a series called Our Brand, and as we think about our brand, and that's really like what we're known for as the people of God, Groups that are learning and living out the Bible, that are full of intentional relationships and accountability, that help each other belong through fellowship and care, and that are evangelistic, trying to help others see the hope we have in Christ, and are serving each other and serving those outside of the group together, really is something that should be a part of that brand, of our brand. It's something we should be known for. As we began our time in Philippians last week, we saw Paul's partnership with the believers in Philippi. And we talked about three mindsets in these opening words by Paul that lead to a joyful partnership. And I think we should glance at what we read last week again because it gives context to the verses we'll be looking at today in Philippians chapter one. So I'm gonna start by reading Philippians one, one through six, which we read last week. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day 
of Jesus Christ. So in Paul, we see humility. We see his view of himself in relationship to others. He does not see himself, even though he is the apostle Paul, as superior to them, but rather as their equal, all having access to God through Jesus Christ. But we also see that Paul has a view of everyone in relationship to God, and he realizes everyone's need for the grace of God and the peace of God in our lives. And so really that's where humility comes from is understanding who God is and who we are in relationship to God. And probably flowing out of that humility, we see a gratitude in Paul. Even though his time in Philippi, if you look in Acts, was not a time to look back on with fond memories, he has great affection and gratitude for the people of Philippi, the believers in Philippi. And this is flowing from his prayer life And this is flowing from their partnership. And then that leads to confidence. He has confidence. True joy, true confidence comes from faith in an ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God who proves himself to us over and over again. And as Paul expands upon this partnership, I want to continue looking at what it takes for this kind of partnership by showing the characteristics of this joyful partnership. And my hope for you is that you will recognize God's plan, God's intention for you to grow into who he has called you to be by being partnered with other believers, by being a part of the church. And so we'll look at the how, the why, the what, and the who here in verses seven through 11, which I will read now. Paul writes, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, that's what you deserve, glory and praise. And so I pray, because we spend time in your word this morning, that you would get glory and praise, that I wouldn't be glorified or praised, and that we wouldn't glorify or praise ourselves, but rather we would see who you are and we would commit to living our lives for the glory and praise that you deserve, recognizing how good you are. So have your way in us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that I think we should talk about from this text is how we should feel about our partners in Christ. How we should feel about our partners in Christ. Paul says several things that expresses that he has deep, feelings toward the Philippians. And I I just want to look at those. First in verse seven, notice that he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. The Greek word here is the word phreneo, which involves the mind and the heart. It can be translated as thoughts or feelings. And, And translations differ when using that Greek word because there isn't an English word that quite captures this. But what Paul is trying to say is he's trying to say, my heart, my mind are stirred 
for people. There is something that I feel about people. Now, I, I realize that we differ in personality. And some of you, kind of it's like, you know, computer, I do not feel feelings. But listen, we are, because of Jesus, to feel in a certain way. And Jesus does that in us. He begins to move in our thoughts and minds for or towards our partners in Christ. Notice also that he says, because I hold you in my heart. There is debate about that phrase, because I hold you in my heart, uh, is actually ambiguous, the, the, what's being written here. But, and so some have said it should be translated because you hold me in your heart. And then others, and the majority of scholars, that's why it's typically translated this way, say he's saying, I hold you in my heart. The rest of this letter supports a mutual feeling that the Philippians hold Paul in their heart and that Paul holds the Philippians in their heart. And so what Paul is saying as the writer is he's saying, as I think about my life progressing, my life developing, the plans of my life unfolding, you're a part of that. I think about you. Jesus taught us that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, recognizing there are some because of psychological trauma that struggle with loving themselves, the reality is the majority of people, the default is that we do love ourselves, that we do care for ourselves. And when the Bible is writing, it's writing with that mindset in mind, and it's saying, as you love yourself, you are to love your neighbor. In the same way that you care for yourself, you're to care for your neighbor. And so this is a transformation that takes place when we are trusting in Christ as we begin to not only look out for us, but to look out for those who we are partnered with in Christ. In verse eight, he writes, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all, which proves that y'all is a biblically acceptable phrase to use. When he says you all, he refers back to verse one when he's writing to all the saints who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So he's talking about the believers there and he's saying, I yearn for you all. I have this drawing to you. I want to be with you. You think about a magnet, right? And how a magnet has just this kind of, it's gonna move towards, it's moving towards it. It can't resist. And and so that's, that's what it should be in the life of a Christian. We yearn to be with other believers. And a final expression of affection here is with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, affection meant bowels. That's where the word came from. And so, um, you know, we don't use that in our wedding vows today. You know, I just, I have this deep feeling in my bowels for you. You know, that just doesn't translate as well. But affection to them was like your inside was trying to come out. You were, you were moved. There was something moving in you. Paul's other letters expressed this kind of affection for others. But notice, notice he says, this is important, with the affection of Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives you the affection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit works in you and gives you the affection of Jesus. Johann Bengel said, it is not Paul who lives within Paul, but Jesus Christ, which is why Paul is not moved by the bowels of Paul, but by the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, you might want context before you put that on a shirt that I'm moved by the bowels of Christ or something like that. But think about the transformation that's taken place in Paul's life. 
persecutor, wanted to kill Christians. Now he yearns for them. He loves them. He would do anything for them. George Guthrie writes, the mix of affection, joy, and confidence that Paul feels when he thinks about the Philippians would be similar to a parent who experiences great joy and confidence in a child who does well in life. And that joy and confidence is bound up with deep affection, the deep affection that the parent feels for the child. This is what the Spirit of God does. God feels this way about his children. And as the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we begin to feel this way about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we wrap up this point, I think it's appropriate for me to ask, do you feel this way about partners in Christ? Deeply in your heart, do you yearn for them? And if not, are you filled with the Spirit? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you said to him, I yield to you? Have your way. Make me new. And perhaps the reason you don't have that longing and feeling is because you have never surrendered to God. But for Christians, I would say maybe we're not abiding in Christ and so we don't feel it. And so the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us But the truth is comparison is such a strong presence in our heart that we're not feeling this like we should. Or maybe our worry about our dreams coming true is such a strong presence in our heart that we're not feeling this like we should. Or maybe bitterness that we've experienced or we've developed through relationships is here. And so it's so strong of a presence that we're not feeling this. But what Christ does is Christ comes into our heart and he begins to stir our heart for people like the way he loves people. Now, as we move to our next point, I wanna put something else out here. Perhaps you notice what Paul said at the beginning of verse seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Now, right means consistent with righteous living, godly conduct. Paul uses it 24 times referring to having your mindset on the spirit rather than the flesh. So we are going to talk about why it is right to feel this way, why we should feel this way about our partners in Christ. Verse 7 says this, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So there are three things I wanna say here. The first is the reason why we should feel this way about our partners in Christ is because they are partners with Christ, in Christ. He says, for you are all partakers with me in grace, right there in verse seven. And so what we have and the reason we're thankful the reason we feel this way, we love them so deeply, is we have a partnership in grace. A partnership in grace. Partakers conveys partnership. The root word here is the Greek word koinonia. And it's a word that is used with frequency by Paul to describe this experience. It means that we are united around a cause and we have a common agenda, a common purpose. And that purpose is grace. When Paul speaks of grace, he speaks of the grace of Jesus Christ and the overflow of that grace in the way we live our life and proclaim the gospel. As we talk about the goal in a few minutes, we will see 
that. But for now, understand that the reason that Paul feels the way he does about the Philippians, the reason that it feels like his insides are going to come out when he thinks about them and spending time with them is because they are partners with him in this. And not only have they declared that, but there's evidence of this through the circumstances that they and Paul are in. He mentions them in verse seven. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, it is one thing, and it's important to declare our commitment and our partnership in grace, and that stirs our affection for people. But there's something else that stirs our affection for people in this way, and it is the evidence of the authenticity of that partnership through trial. It is the evidence of the authenticity of that partnership through trial. Trial reveals partnership. It reveals our commitment to being partners in grace. Here, Paul talks about two things that were countercultural in their day. Standing in support of an imprisoned person and standing in support of the less impressive person. First, Paul was imprisoned. If you were imprisoned in their day, you were treated as someone who had no rights. You were not even guaranteed food and water. But the Philippians continued to support Paul financially and by sending people to minister to him and still respected him as a minister of the gospel, even though he was considered in a material sense to be a second-class citizen or really not a citizen at all at this point because they were his partner in grace and even in this trial. Paul also says, in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Defending is a technical term that referenced mounting a defense in court against legal accusations. The accusations in this case were the false teachers who were visiting the early churches and trying to sway them towards their teaching. The primary way you see this talked about in the New Testament is legalism. And so like there were constantly, you can read that about this in Galatians, um, there were constantly people who were coming in and really trying to get people to believe that following the law saved them and that those who weren't following the law or their set of the laws weren't saved. And so there was that teaching that was abundant in this day. There was also liberalism, which was kind of saying, hey, we don't really need to be concerned with righteous living right, because of the grace of God or because of love or whatever it might be. And so there was that. And then, then there were just people who were coming in and saying all kinds of whack things about Jesus, you know, and, and saying that he wasn't God and, 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 and just all kinds of different things. You can, you can look that up. And the primary tactic that these false teachers had was to discredit the gospel teachers. Look, he's in prison. We're doing well. We must know something. Look, he's not impressive, but look how good we are and slick we are. And Paul recognized that his opponent said of him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And I'm telling you that just like then today, there are those with slick, impressive language and approaches and cool environments and experiences, and they're trying to get you whether it's consciously or subconsciously, to walk away from the gospel. 
This was happening to the Philippians, and the Philippians were not unsettled by it. The traveling preachers who held all kinds of ideas that might have easily seduced them with their separation from the mighty apostle by time and distance, no, they were confirmed. A word referring to a legal guarantee. The gospel was where they would stand. And Paul, because of their partnership and grace and because of seeing how they remained faithful in the trial, had this deep affection for them. Before we move on to what we should want for each other, there's a third thing I wanna mention here. Once again, I wanna point out that Paul said in verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, which indicates that it is possible, and I don't want you to miss this, for it to be wrong to feel this way about someone. It can be wrong to feel gratefulness and confidence for someone. It can be wrong to feel gratefulness and confidence for someone. Paul's reason for feeling grateful and confident for the Philippians is because they are rooted in the gospel, because they are partakers of grace. And there is evidence of that through trial. So he has said grace and peace to you. He has said, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. He has said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so he has great confidence for them. But that is not true of someone who has not surrendered to Christ. Your family member, who there's no evidence that Jesus is their Lord, we gotta stop saying when they pass away, we know they're in a better place. We cannot have that kind of confidence about someone who has not confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. People who are swept away and living for a false gospel who might be well-meaning in one sense, the Bible points out how depraved minds are drawn to those things. And we cannot have that kind of confidence for them and people who are very religious and very concerned with tradition, but whose heart isn't stirred towards God. We must recognize that there is no confidence in that. G.K. Chesterton said that morality did not begin by one man saying to another, I will not hit you if you do not hit me. There is no trace of such a transaction. There's a trace of both men having said, we must not hit each other in the holy place. They gained their morality by guarding their religion. They did not cultivate courage. They fought for the shrine and found that they had become courageous. They did not cultivate cleanliness. They purified themselves for the altar and found that they were clean. What he's talking about is he's talking about this mutual agreement we make as, as humans to say, hey, we're justified if we do these things. But the only one who can justify us is God. It doesn't matter if we have come up with some social contract that makes us feel good and confident about our life. What matters is if we stand assured before a holy God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Look, love hopes all things. I have family members who said they're Christians, who their life didn't indicate it in any way, and I hope because I love them, even though they've passed away, that they did know the grace of God, and for some reason that was distorted in the life they lived, trusting in God, but, 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 but that's my hope. But if there's no evidence, I don't have this great confidence in that. I only have confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have no reason to hope that the person who gets in their car and says, I'm going to drive to China, will make it there. No matter how sincere they are. No matter how ambitious they are. No matter how comparatively good they are. I have no hope that they will make it. And I have less hope that some will make it to heaven who has not trusted in Jesus Christ who is the only way. Guys, it is not loving. It is not loving to excuse people's actions and, and, and disregard for God because they do a few good things. It is unloving to not tell someone that a holy God created them and loves them and has sent Jesus Christ for them. And we cannot have this kind of confidence. I could talk about this for hours, but I'm gonna move on. We talked about how we should feel about our partners in Christ, why we should feel this way. Here's what we should hope for our partners in Christ. This is what we wanna see in their lives. Look at verse nine and 10. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So, the first thing he says is love with knowledge and discernment. We want love with knowledge to abound in the life of the people we're partnered with in grace. Look at verse nine. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. People should become more loving if they're following Jesus. This is becoming more loving, in case you didn't know. Like, we should love God more and we should love our family more and we should love people more. We should love the hard to love more. That should be growing. But Paul's prayer is not for a generic love that is left up to our definition to abound more and more. He gives a condition with knowledge and all discernment. George Guthrie says that love unanchored from knowledge does not lead to discernment of what is spiritually valuable. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it tells us that love without knowledge is dangerous and knowledge without love is dangerous. What we should become as followers of Jesus Christ are people who are biblically literate and deeply affectionate. And I should have put that in your bulletin. We should be biblically literate and deeply affectionate. As we get to know who God is and what he has said about us in the world, that should result in this deep affection for him and for others. Mark Cowan says of love, it is a selective love rather than an impulsive love. Christian love is not blind. Love sees the scripture and seeks to live it out. If we love our children, we want them to pursue a life that brings enjoyment. But we understand you do you is not love. It's dangerous. The kind of love that we often talk about in the church is the kind of love that would say to our children, I know you're playing in oncoming traffic, but I don't want to disappoint you by telling you about the dangers that will happen if you do that. 
that's not love, it's recklessness. Love has a deep abiding sense of truth with grace. Truth and grace is not about balance, it is about boldness. It's about being willing to be so committed to someone no matter what and tell them what needs to be said at the same time. If we want to grow in something, maybe it's a sport, it's academics, whatever it may be, there is training that is involved. There is discipline that is involved. And we must recognize that we have to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, that God has to do a work in us to make us more like him. And we must be gospel-centered when we talk about love, and we must not miss the gospel because if we miss the gospel in our conversations about grace and truth, we are missing Jesus Christ. And we're missing who God has really created us to be, and we're missing what really propels how we should live. I, I debated on whether or not I should share this just because of the heaviness of the topic. But I hope that it will help you understand how important it is to look at people and talk to people with a gospel in mind and not a shallow definition of love and grace and forgiveness. In a previous church, I was a part of a small group. And when I'm a part of a small group that I'm not leading, I try not to talk that much. Um, I still talk a lot because I'm just a talker. Um, but those who are in my current life group when I'm there, you realize I try, I try not to talk that much. And um, one night we were having a discussion and I don't know, I don't even remember what scripture we're in, we're in and we were talking about condemnation and guilt. One of the young women in the group I was a part of began to share with this group of about 20 people how when she was young and single, she had had several abortions and how that had haunted her. And the guilt of that really paralyzed her in many ways. And most of the group didn't know how to say this in this moment and mixed company. And another woman in that group spoke up and said, it's okay. You don't need to feel bad about that because that was just the path you had to go down. And she was trying to make her feel better. And I prayed about it before I spoke, which is not always what I do. I'm working on that. And I looked at her and I said, God hates that you had abortions. And Jesus Christ took that hate on on the cross. And you're forgiven 100% because a holy God loves you that much. And he's worth, he's worth everything because he has not compromised his holiness and his wrath and yet his affection for you is that great. That, that is love. That is grace. That is forgiveness. That's what fuels this kind of life that Christ has called us to live. We must not stop short with cheap grace and cheap love and cheap forgiveness. Love with all knowledge and all discernment. We should also want for people faith with works. Verse 10 so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
Approved means to discern or test something. Excellent means that something has been delivered. It passed the test and it has been delivered. The word used here is actually a word for testing and approving uh, after the test has been passed. It would be used for the testing of coins. They had a way of checking coins and only the ones that were approved became genuine currency. The rest were thrown away. And because of this, they were considered pure and blameless. That's the result of this discerning and testing. The word there for pure could be translated as sincere. It's a Greek word that comes from the word sunlight. And the idea here is that the thing would be tested as light reveals it. Hawthorne and Martin in their commentary says that Paul here prays that the Philippians will overflow increasingly in a knowledgeable and discerning love so that through this love, they can discern the things that really matter and choose the best course of action in every situation. And notice the date he has in mind. The day of Christ. This is the day he has in mind. That we would be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. If you see in verse 11, he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Fee says in his commentary, the gift of Christ righteousness means a life of righteousness. Righteousness is our position and our direction. Righteousness is being justified before a holy God because of who Christ is and trusting in him. And it's the way we live our lives because that's our position. It's the fact that we are people who proclaim the gospel and live the gospel. And they go hand in hand. Mark Count says that through righteous living, witness is given to unbelievers and it enhances the hope of salvation for the lost. Through righteous living, witness is given to unbelievers. It enhances the hope of the salvation for the lost. And that's what we should hope for, that our life would point to our position. The last thing here is who we are partnering with. Paul says in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The means is the righteousness of Christ. To live for the gospel in this world is not easy. To partner with people in grace is not easy. And I think that we've kind of tried to make ourselves feel like we're managing that tension by by one of two things, and, and I'm generalizing here, but one is by proving it, right? So like, even though life is hard and it's hard to live for Christ, like I'm gonna prove that I'm living for the gospel, so I'm gonna wear Christian t-shirts and I'm gonna, you know, not, I'm gonna drink sweet tea only when I'm at restaurants or, you know, go to church a certain amount of times or whatever. And so, so we feel like we're proving that the gospel is taking root because of those things. Or, or, or maybe we, we try to hide it, right? And so we just like hide from the world and all the bad in the world. But there's a serious tension of we have this position of righteousness, so we're called to live for Jesus, and yet we're in this fallen world. How, how, and then the church is full of fallen people. How do I really live my life that way? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is there. You partner with Jesus and Jesus promises to be with us in this work. That's how we get there. 
And then he really does this great work in us. And that's all we need is him. Paul says in verse eight, look, for God is my witness. Now it was customary in a Jewish legal sense to have two to three witnesses for something you would proclaim. And Paul says regularly in the New Testament, God is my witness. He says, that's all I need. Jesus Christ is how I live my life this way. He has given me the Holy Spirit. He is the one doing the work. My partnership is with Jesus. And by being partners in grace, we are primarily partnered with Jesus and it is his church that he's building. And so the means is Jesus Christ. And the end is the glory and praise of God. That's, that's what we're striving for. That's the end, big picture. And that's what we should really desire in our lives and in every relationship, in every situation is that the result would be the glory and praise of God. That's the goal of Paul's partnership with the Philippians. In the short, shorter Westminster Catechism, it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. And so, check your heart and ask, is my purpose actually to enjoy me forever and glorify me forever? We even sometimes as a church have to check ourselves and say, are we really just trying to glorify a church organization and enjoy church? Or do we really enjoy Jesus and is our me end really to enjoy God? And in Jesus, we'll get there in Philippians 2. He embodied this. To say my life is lived for the glory of God the Father, no matter what that takes. And as a Christian, when we begin to live for that, that begins to overflow through us. General Charles Krulak, the 31st commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps and a former president of Birmingham Southern tells the story of John Listerman, who was a Marine and committed follower of Christ during the Vietnam War. He says, we were on patrol, moving down a trail through the jungle. We came around a corner in that trail and we ran into an ambush. John took the first 50 caliber round right in his kneecap. As his kneecap burst, the crack was so loud, it sounded like a mortar exploding. It threw him up in the air. As he was dropping, the second round hit him below the heart and exited out of his side. I was also wounded, but nowhere near as badly. I saw John about 30 meters away on his back, his leg blown off. I crawled up to him, and I wanted to say to him, are you okay? Can I do anything for you? But before I could get a word out, he turned to me and said, how are you doing, Chucker? Are you okay? I said, yes, John, I'm okay. He said, are my men safe? I said, John, your people are okay. And at that point, he turned his head and looked to the sky and repeated over and over, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for caring for my people. Thank you for caring for me. I was dumbfounded, he said. And Krulak, who's telling this, would later become a Christian, attributing it largely to the selflessness he saw from Listerman in that moment when he was the one who needed help the most. And we think of Jesus Christ 
and the selflessness he displayed for us. And he's invited us to partner with him and to give us the spirit of God and to begin to really work that in and through us. And he's called us, he's called us to be partners in that grace, that growing in us. I believe it was John Maxwell who I first heard, I'm sure others have said this, the difference between you now today and you in five years is the books you read and the people you're around. And may I just suggest that this be the book you read and the church be the people you are around and those be the primary influences in your life. All around you this morning are examples of faithfulness and grace. All around you this morning are people who can equip you in the ways you need it. All around you are people who will encourage you to live the life that God has called you to live. And around you are leaders who will help you see a vision for the life that God has called you to live. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I have been washed in the fountain and cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm a part of the family, the family of God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, may we acknowledge right now that that is the reason that we can be partners in grace is because you are our heavenly father and you have adopted us into your family. Not because we proved we were worth being yours, but because of who you are and your character. And God, maybe the tension, the obstacle in someone's life this morning is that they have never come to that place where they have recognized there is a transformation that needs to take place. That life is not about them and their glory, it's about you. And God, I pray that they would recognize this morning that their sin does deserve judgment. Their sin does deserve the wrath because you are a holy God. But you, a holy God, have loved us and sent Jesus Christ to take on the wrath of God, to take on the punishment we deserve and to bring us into your family. And I pray this morning that they would confess that they need you and trust in you. And I pray that that person who's praying that or who feels that would not leave here today without talking to me or talking to their friend or talking to someone about how they wanna give their life to Jesus. And God, I pray that in your church, our appreciation of the grace of God would deepen and it would become more and more wide in this body, in this city, in this state, in this nation, and wherever you would have us among the world. God, for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name.